So I've been doing this a long time here, and I'm about to do something that I have never done before. I'm going to praise from this pulpit Donald Trump. Don't get out ahead of yourselves too much. It is slight praise, and it's more about whether his life could have turned out differently, which meant a lot of other people's lives would have turned out differently. It's about this person. That is Fred Trump Jr. Some of you might know that Fred Trump Jr. only lived into his 50s. Not too long ago, this past August, the president gave an interview to the Washington Post. It was ostensibly about this upcoming and now current recovery month of September. Donald Trump talked about the fact that when he was a younger man and Fred Trump, especially in the family he grew up in, was expected to take over the, the realms. He was expected to take over the helm of the family business. Except Fred Trump Jr. didn't want to. He didn't want that life. And the president reflected on the fact that he and his father put a tremendous amount of pressure on Fred Trump Jr. to do what was expected of him. Which, as the story is often told, was a direct contributor to Fred Trump Jr. living a pretty unhappy life up until the point that he drank himself into an early grave in his 50s. Now, this is the slight praise part. In this interview, the president indicated that he actually regretted what he did. He actually admitted he made a mistake. And that if he could have gone back, he would do it differently. Now, by his own admission and by his own action, this is something this president never, ever does. Never. And so, I wonder, I wonder what his life would have been like, and by extension, ours, if he had followed his heartbreak, his remorse, his regret, into a different way of living. If he had acknowledged the effect that his bullying had on his brother's life and the end of his brother's life. This is a thought experiment because this is not the world that we live in. I mean, I could go down the litany of all the ways, all the lies, all the bullying, all the policies. I mean, just this past week, right? Another unfounded, baseless rumor that we had to be careful about allowing Bahamians, people who have lost everything into this country, because he said there's some very bad people. Gangs, people dealing drugs, again, a racist lie. Desperate people of color from outside this country who are trying to get in and do us, quote-unquote, harm, turning them into a them. It's not quite recognizable as full human beings. So when I said praise, it really isn't. It's just a hope and a wish for something that didn't happen which is that this president may have found a different path through life without the hard-heartedness that is 
causing harm to so many people. And the truth is, although I think he's a real concentrated dose of hard-heartedness, and opposing that hard-heartedness is something that is congruent with this tradition. There's another thing I take from this. This is how I use Donald Trump in my spiritual practice. I try to allow the things that he does that outrages me to take a look at my own heart. The ways in which I am hard-hearted, the ways in which I close down to the pain of this world. I think this is a very human problem, right? Closing off, whether it's from just hatred, although I imagine most of us in this particular congregation, it's not hatred that closes down our hearts, although maybe it could be or it has been. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's just our own tiredness. Sometimes it is from the very real compassion fatigue of being in a world in which the suffering feels so immense. I can see from the number of you nodding your heads that this is something that is real for us. So the meaning of this series that I begin today and that we're going to do Reverend Lee and myself and Frank, one of our worship leaders, up through the end of October. This series is about the connections and the tensions, the promises and the perils of life between us, between me and you and you and me and all the other me's and all the other you's that you know in your life. And not just that, but also between the us's and the them's, between communities and other communities. That's what this series is about, and I think what happens at the intersection between the me and the you and the us and the them is all about how we allow ourselves to keep our hearts open, even for all the understandable reasons that our hearts may close. Now, one of the reasons that I was affected, or at the very least called attention to this story that I referenced, this interview with the president of the Washington Post, is the way that Fred Trump Jr. died. I am a person in long-term recovery, many of you know. Perhaps there is a part of me that wonders if my own life may have turned out like his. But it didn't, or at the very least it isn't. This week will be 14 years since I quit drinking, and I have to say that one of the things I have learned at this point in my recovery is that I don't miss alcohol at all. I don't think about it very much. It is easy for me now not to drink and to make it a freely chosen choice that alcohol has no productive place in my life anymore, and I am grateful for that ease. I am grateful for what that has opened up. And yet at the same time, that's not the majority of what my recovery is about. It's about keeping my heart open. And on that, my friends, I must tell you that I am a beginner and a fumbler and someone who gets it wrong over and over and over every single day. On keeping my heart open, I am a beginner. And the truth is, I think if we tell the truth about ourselves, most of us are. That it is a daily discipline. 
It is a daily practice to keep our hearts open. There's a book that was written a number of years ago that I have never read, but I love the title of. It was written by someone within the fundamentalist Christian world, which is not my theology at all. I borrow from a whole bunch of different traditions, and I was schooled. Went to school, two different graduate degrees with a whole bunch of progressive Christians, but fundamentalist Christianity is a world that I do not draw from very often, if at all. But I love this title. A long obedience in the same direction. (laughs) Now, perhaps you grew up in traditions in which obedience. (laughs) So translate that however you want to. But there's something really compelling to me about that. Whose attention can fly and flit like a bug crossing the water all over the place. A long obedience in the same direction. It's one of the ways that I understand my ongoing recovery. It is a daily practice. And so when I say a long obedience in the same direction, I'm not talking about stuck rumination. I'm not talking about repetition for repetition's sake. I'm talking about a daily practice of returning to the most basic things of life. The most basic things that it is so easy to forget, especially in the midst of our tiredness and our busyness. And if your mind is anything like mine, self-preoccupation and self-analysis, wondering how I'm doing and all the other things that cloud my mind and my heart and keep me from authentic connection with other people. And so at this time of the year, which I find to be kind of a crux time, a crucial time, I have a tendency towards a pretty sustained melancholy which can be a way of connecting with other people, but it also can be a way of totally isolating myself. And so I find this year is an invitation to deepen my spiritual practice. I'm doing that in a particular way that some of you know I am doing, but you may not know why. It's this. You might have seen I have started for the last three weekends a practice that, as I was walking along the river in Conchahawken, where we live, I just sat one day and I looked at the river and I looked at the trees across the river, kind of barely hiding the Schuylkill Expressway. You can hear it, but you can't quite see it, although that will change in months to come as the leaves shed and the Schuylkill reveals itself. I wondered what it would be like to come to this place at least once a week and just look. Watching the river flow. Last week, excuse me, yesterday, which actually was last week, I posted week three. I will hope to do this every single week for at least a year to see what it's like to return to a place that is quote-unquote the same. But that's the thing. When we have a long practice, a long discipline in the same direction, we actually see how many things change at the same time that we draw upon the thing that Adam said today. The comfort that there is within familiarity, which gives us permission through that safety to keep the heart open to what is changing. I think this can pierce our illusions of separateness from ourselves, and from each other. I think it can open up to, at least if my past experience tells me the truth, which I believe it does in this way, it can open up to something like communion. 
a real sense of belonging to this life. Returning to look over and over and over again at the most basic things. This changes us. Changed me. Some of you may have heard about the group called Solumination. Any of you ever heard of Solumination? Okay, well, then this will all be new to you. I didn't know about them until sometime this summer when I read an article about how this group started. Kind of an odd thing. It didn't start intentionally. It started with an invitation of one sister to another. The founder of Solumination, her sister had a child who was stillborn. And the founder of Solumination was invited by her sister to take a picture of her niece who did not live in this life at all, born dead. And from this one experience, which the founder of Solumination found so powerful, she said, how many other people have moments like this, moments with children who might be stillborn, moments with raising children who have incurable illnesses or who are dying? What would it be like to offer these families who so often are hidden because we are so afraid of death in this culture and especially the death of children? What would it be like to offer them the gift of being able to capture something of that experience if they wish it? And what Solumination does is exactly that. They offer free opportunities for photography for children who have incurable illnesses who are dying, or who have just died. One of their photographers is this person, Carol and Catlin. Now these stories, these photographs, as a photographer, in many ways her job is to disappear, to not make herself be the focus of what's happening. She recognized that the stories she captures and offers as gifts back to families, she doesn't want to be the center of the attention. These stories aren't hers. And yet, the story is hers. You see, about five, ten years ago, Carolyn started having weird headaches and had memory loss, and she was like 25, and she was fatigued all the time. And she kept going back to the doctor over and over again, and they couldn't find anything was wrong, and she kept advocating for herself. You see, she was on her way to become a social worker, as well as a photographer. And she eventually got an MRI, and the MRI showed a mass, a growth on her brain, which they thought was benign. And so they did an operation. She lives in the West Coast. Her parents flew across the country from the East Coast to be in that doctor's room to receive the diagnosis of what actually was wrong with her. She remembers it so clearly with a great photographer's eye. She remembers her father fiddling, taking on and off his glasses. She remembers sitting next to her mother on that crinkly doctor paper and hearing that there. And she remembers the moment when... The surgeon came in, and the surgeon said, it is not benign. It is malignant. 
And Carolyn says, I am 27 and I have incurable cancer. This animates what she does for soul illumination. She says sometimes it connects her directly. Sometimes, like when she was taking a picture of a teenager who had just come to the point that the teenager and her family decided no more chemo. It's not adding anything in the way of years or healing to my life and it's taking away an awful lot of the quality of my life. And this teenager was feeling like she wanted to take the picture but was feeling a little uncomfortable and Carolyn said, is all right if I take off my hat? And they could see that they both had chemo hair. And with that, the teenager eased and felt comfortable. The picture that accompanied this story, I actually have chosen not to show you. You can go and Google Illumination. It's an article in the New York Times. You'll find it easily. The picture that accompanied this story was of a stillborn child being cradled with love by this child's parents. In many ways, I wonder if I should have showed you this picture and actually said nothing at all. Then maybe that would be enough church for one day to look upon love and loss and allow it to change our hearts. Carolyn describes taking this picture of this little baby boy whose lungs had not developed and the doctors knew lungs would not develop, being delivered alive and being immediately placed in the loving embrace of this child's mother and father, hugged close with all the love in the world for as long as they had him, taking his few breaths and then dying. Carolyn remembers how deep that love is and how deep that loss is. At the end of every day that she does this work, Carolyn turns off all the lights in her house, save for her computer, and she puts on candles, and she reviews her day's work. And then she says, and then, before I shut down the computer and I climb into bed, I sit for a moment, alone with all of these images, feeling the weight of each loss, matched only by the magnitude of each family's love for their child, just as I hope someone would someday do for me. Maybe some of you have seen or saw this image or this interview. It's with Stephen Colbert, Anderson Cooper. One of the reasons I love Stephen Colbert is that his humor, which is wicked sometimes, is always animated by compassion. He never punches down. He always punches up. He has a big heart, 
One of the reasons he has a big heart is because, as some of you might know, when he was 10 years old, he lost his father and two of his brothers to a plane crash. And he talks openly about this. And he said with Anderson Cooper, and actually it brought tears to Anderson Cooper's eyes, he said, from paying attention to loss, we get awareness of others' losses. And this allows you to connect, allows you to love more deeply and to understand what it's like to be a human being. This is what can unite us and keep our hearts open and allow some of those barriers. I'm not talking about healthy boundaries. I'm talking about those, ba- those barriers that we do not need that separate me and you and that separate us and them and that keep us from being fully human. These incurable things, these wild darkness things, these baked into the cake things, These things that can feel unbearable. And if we allow them to connect us with each other, we find out that heartbreak may not just be endurable, but sustainable. Because it allows us to see our love. And it returns me in closing today to one of my favorite Long obediences in the same direction. For Mary Oliver, she of our tradition, she of blessed memory, shares this amazing poem that I'll read to you. Here is a story to break your heart. Are you willing? This winter the loons came to our harbor and died one by one of nothing we could see. A friend told me of one on the shore that lifted its head and opened the elegant beak and cried out in the long sweet savoring of its life. Which of you have heard it you know is a sacred thing and for which if you have not heard it you had better hurry to where they still sing and believe me no one tell no one just where that is. The next morning this loon Speckled and iridescent and with a plan to fly home to some hidden lake was dead on the shore. I tell you this to break your heart, by which I mean only that it open and never close again to the rest of the world. That it open again and never close again to the rest of the world. When we open our hearts to the challenges and the struggles and the suffering of this world, we find they're not heartbreak four. Heartbreak four runs out. Heartbreak four is pretty close to pity in a lot of ways, which is not a sustainable emotion. It is a hierarchical emotion. It elevates us and puts others down. Or if we're being pitied, it puts us down and elevates others above us. Instead, this is heartbreak with which is just another name for love. This may make heartbreak sustainable for ourselves and each other because we remember we are not alone in it. May there be room in your heart today for yourself, my friends, and there may be room in your heart for each other. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? Spirit, please light our way. Through the moments when sight of eye, sight of heart,
sight of hearing, sight of connection feels as if there is no path. In those moments, may we look upon ourselves and each other again with the eyes of the heart which are never truly closed. If we are suffering and struggling today, may we allow ourselves to find what we need in the way of love and find it here if we need it. And if we have love to give, let us remember that even as we turn in the seasons into the fall and then into the winter, that love stored up doesn't have any place to go. It exists to be shared and magnified. Strengthening us all. Sustaining us all. Amen.